So it might be safe to say that never before and really never since has a country been in such need of being rebuilt politically, economically, culturally, as during the era of Reconstruction. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes this Reconstruction era so poignant. It's as close to a reboot as we've ever had a chance for in American history. We wrote this constitution that did an elaborate dance around slavery, and then we lived with it for generations until the war tore it apart. We made all these compromises. But finally, here's a chance to create a nation without slavery. What a tantalizing possibility. How many countries get a chance to reimagine themselves? As someone who works on the founding, the, the thing about these kinds of rebooting moments, they're moments of amazing promise, but for that very reason, they're also moments of tremendous instability and actually fear. Yeah, you know, that promise and that fear are played out in communities all across the South. And what we're going to do today is visit two of those communities, one Washington, D.C., the other rural Louisiana, to see what this might look like in people's lives. Our first story begins in Washington, D.C., during the Civil War itself. The Capitol, as it turns out, showed the promise of Reconstruction for African Americans more than any other place in the country. So here's the scene. D.C. is in wartime chaos. The city has been transformed into a giant army camp. There are tens of thousands of Union soldiers stationed there. Now, D.C. had always had a considerable free black population, but now thousands of slaves from surrounding plantations in Maryland and Virginia are following soldiers into Washington. A group of lawmakers known as the Radical Republicans see this chaos as their chance to do something, well, radical. This group is a prominent faction in Congress, and Congress pretty much calls the shots in D.C. They want to turn Washington into what they call an example for all the land. Well, that quote, the example for all the land, is something that Charles Sumner said. This is historian Kate Mazur. And she's referring to Senator Charles Sumner, the abolitionist leader from Massachusetts. He's the senator who was caned on the floor of the Senate in 1856 before giving a speech in which he denounced the slave power. Yep, that's the guy, Joanne. He was one of the chief architects of this radical Reconstruction. He was one of the main people in Congress to keep pushing for more and more legislation, equalizing legislation. And he said, we want to make the District of Columbia an example for all the land. Washington, D.C. really illuminates for us the will of Congress and what uh, the nation's legislators would like to do if they had the chance, because just they have so much power there. And so they, when the Republicans are in control during the 1860s and uh, beginning of the 1870s, they experiment on Washington and kind of use it as a laboratory for what they believe uh, should happen in terms of civil rights and, uh, and voting rights. So, Ed, why don't you explain what the radical Republicans actually thought should happen? You know, Joanne, what's interesting is they wanted what those African-American petitioners from Nashville, Tennessee, were wanting. And it turned out what African-Americans across the entire South wanted. And these radical Republicans knew that they could make it happen and do it quickly, too. And so here are some of the changes that really in just a few years, African-Americans experienced in Washington, D.C., First of all, emancipation, legal emancipation in Washington happens in spring 1862. The Congress also passes a law establishing public education for African-American children and outlawing the city's or the district's black codes, which had been discriminatory, racially discriminatory laws that kind of prevailed and defined the city before the war. 
Black Washingtonians have a new voice in the city's public life. They attend sessions of Congress. They lobby sympathetic lawmakers such as Sumner and the abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens. And they persuade Congress to desegregate the district's streetcars and railroads. And by 1863, the United States Army was recruiting black soldiers. And those soldiers marched in formation down the muddy avenues of Washington, D.C., I mean, it's just think about how amazing it would be uh, in a city where just a year earlier slavery had been legal, uh, where it was still possible for uh, Maryland slave owners to come into the city and demand uh, to have their property back. And now you have African-American men in uniform drilling in the streets. Soldiers themselves uh, feel that they have the standing and the right to demand uh, more than they're already getting. Now, here's a question, Ed. Yeah. So, um You've talked about it as a laboratory, sort of setting out, Here, here's a high that we can aim for. Right. Are they doing that partly just to see if it can work, or are they really intending to kind of publicize this to make a strong public message? Look at, look at what can happen, world, or certainly right. look at what can happen the rest of the United States. Look at what we're doing here. No, I think that, that what they are doing is they recognize that there's a skeptical audience out there. Mm-hmm. You know, most white Americans aren't sure what will happen to enslaved people as soon as they are free. There's widespread prediction that they will die like the American Indians had. There's right, others right. who are saying that they're going to pick up these guns that were handing them as soldiers and wage war against us because well, they would have adequate reason. And there are other people who are saying, well, they won't work. And they don't care about educating their children. Mm -hmm. So I think that, Joanne, they are proving to themselves as well as Mm -hmm. to the outside Mm -hmm. world that what they believe in is true, is that there is this innate capacity in African-Americans to live up to the standards of American citizenship, to take care of themselves, to take care of each other, and to really establish a new kind of progress in the country. You know, and I would add that D.C.'s black residents show that they're more than ready for full citizenship. You know, as you mentioned, even before they had the right to vote, they're lobbying Congress, they're establishing churches, mutual aid societies, schools, they're building institutions to help freed people and newly freed people build their lives. And all of that, Nathan, pressures Congress to give them more rights, to make them full citizens. Mm-hmm. By 1869, the city council passes a public accommodation law that uh, bars discrimination in theaters and restaurants as well. And then, of course, there's voting rights. Um, In 1867, Congress uh, passed voting rights for African-American men in D.C. In addition to all of that, uh, new employment opportunities begin to open up. So with the rise of black voting, African-American men are more likely to get jobs on uh, city streets and city improvements. And then uh, federal employment opens up, African-American men in particular, but also some women um, begin to have federal clerkships and white collar positions. Um, So those are just some of the many uh, ways that things really open up in terms of uh, rights and equality in Washington in this period. But African-Americans didn't have to travel very far to discover that these new rights were actually quite tenuous. This is the story of Kate Brown, and her story was one that I became really, really interested in. Brown was a free black woman living in Washington. She was an employee in the United States Capitol building. She w- she staffed the what was called the ladies' restroom, the ladies' retiring room in the U.S. Senate. One day uh, in February 1868, she decided to go visit a relative in Alexandria, and she left from uh, on the railroad that actually passed in front of the United States Capitol building. Now, let's just be clear. That's Alexandria, Virginia. That's like 10 miles from the Capitol, just across the Potomac River. 
she had bought a round trip ticket on the ladies' car. And in Washington, because of these laws that Congress had passed earlier, there was no racial discrimination on public uh, transportation. And so she rode in the ladies' car on the way down to Alexandria. Well, the situation was completely different on the way back. The conductor refused to seat her because the ladies' car was understood to be reserved for white women. She wouldn't get off, and they tried to physically get her off that car, and she grabbed onto the pole, and she resisted um, being kicked off the car. And eventually, though, two men overcame her with their strength and threw her off, and she ended up uh, on the platform and really injured. As it turned out, some government employees saw Brown get thrown off the train and actually helped her to get home. Now, she worked at the Capitol building, remember, and it wasn't long before some sympathetic congressmen, including that Charles Sumner senator we talked about before, heard what had happened to her. Uh, She was injured. She was in bed. A couple of senators had gone to her house and took her testimony about what had happened. And they also um, took testimony from witnesses who had seen uh, what had gone down there. And um, that formed the basis of a report published by the Senate that Sumner wanted to use to argue for more legislation uh, to protect African-American riders on railroads. Kate Brown sued the railroad. The railroad says, no, 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 look, it's entirely legal because we're providing separate but equal accommodations. Now, the courts rejected that argument at that time, and Kate Brown won her case. One of the things that's striking about it is just the the almost literal line in the sand, right, that that really uh, the sort of little subset of Washington, that, that it really is in a way still a laboratory and it's not extending necessarily very far out. So that the, at the beginning of a train ride is one set of circumstances and at yeah. the end of the train ride is another. Right. Yeah, and it also is, is proof positive that in the era of Reconstruction, it matters a great deal who your friends are, right? The fact that right. Kate Brown has these relationships with legislators who can effectively try to enforce rights she should already have, right? I mean, her, right. her rights are only as good as her access to politicians who can do something about it. And that strikes me as a consistent theme running through the late 19th and into the 20th century that it's one thing to have laws on the books. It's another altogether to get those laws enforced. Kate Brown, like African-Americans all across the South, learn all too quickly that there are limits to the promises of Reconstruction. And that sets the stage for our next story. But first, a word from one of today's sponsors. 